This week, the most highly cited papers of all time. Nobody really knows what distinguishes this sliver, this centimetre of papers at the top of the mountain, from those that are just very well known. And we pay our respects to the First Lady of Science Communication. There's a wonderful description of how uh, sound waves move. She describes them as like the wind moving through a field of corn. Very, very simple image. Also, has NASA chosen the wrong stepping stone to Mars? This is The Nature Podcast for October the 30th, 2014. I'm Jeff Marsh. And I'm Kerry Smith. Jeff? Jeff? Oh, God, I think Jeff's disappeared into a metaphor again. Jeff? It's very difficult to work out the importance of a science paper. One crude measure was instigated 50 years ago when an American scientist, Eugene Garfield, set up the Science Citation Index to track citations in the scientific literature. Half a century on, and the Web of Science, an archive which now covers everything from arts and humanities to theoretical mathematics, holds 58 million items. If you scaled that mountain of literature to Mount Kilimanjaro, then the 100 most cited papers would represent only about a centimetre at the very top. Conveniently, waiting for me at this fictional scholarly summit is nature reporter Richard Van Norden. Hi, Richard! Hey, Jeff. Good to see you here. How are you coping with the altitude up here? Well, it's certainly rarefied air. I'm looking down on a mountain of paper, and um, I'm just going to pick the the top sheet, the most cited paper of all time. Okay, now before you do your big reveal then, we'll let our listeners have just a few seconds to guess what this top most cited paper of all time might be. You've got five seconds, go. I think they're going to kick themselves. Hurry up, it's getting cold up here. And the winner is, it's Oliver Lowry, of course, with his very famous paper, an assay to determine the amount of protein in a solution, which he published in 1951. Very familiar. (laughs) Not quite the celebrity paper we were all expecting, I presume. Well, very familiar, actually, to biochemists. I think everyone has used this method and cited this method. And in fact, uh, to peel away a little bit more, the top three are all biochemical techniques for determining, quantifying the amount of protein in a solution. Or number two is a buffer used in another kind of protein analysis. I mean, these are the meat and drink of biochemists the world over. And whenever they write a paper, they will cite these papers. And these papers, the top paper, has more than 300,000 citations. What happened to Einstein's special theory of relativity and some of these big, hitting, sexy science papers? Right, so that is one of the surprises, or perhaps not the surprise of this list. The discovery of DNA, the theory of relativity, the discovery of high-temperature superconductors, Nobel Prize stuff, none of them makes this list. They're all very well cited, of course. But to get into the top 100 says as much about the vagaries of how scientists cite each other as it does about which are the best discoveries of all time. Okay, so the top three papers here are biochemical methods. Is that a kind of trend over the whole top 100? Most of the top 100 papers are methods. In fact, number four is a very famous method, Fred Sanger's method of sequencing DNA. But there are also a lot of statistics papers in there. There are some bioinformatics papers, a lot of computer software. So people develop software for, say, crystallography. 
and then write a paper explaining the program. And that paper gets cited whenever anyone uses the program to work out a crystal structure. There are some classic discoveries, the discovery of graphene, the discovery of carbon nanotubes. They've already made their way into the top 100. But they are rarities compared to the methods and the mathematics. This is what the top 100 list is made of. And of these methods, I mean, are they the best methods? Are they the most useful methods? Why is it that they managed to make this top 100? This comes back to the, the mystery of citation. Lowry himself said of his method that's at number one, I know it's not a great paper, but I secretly get a kick out of the response. This was back in 1977 when he wrote about it as the most cited. The fact is that nobody really knows what distinguishes this sliver, this centimetre of papers at the top of the mountain, from those that are just very well known. Now, another common practice is that really foundational discoveries like you know, the theory of relativity, never get cited because they just quickly get incorporated into the textbooks. So people mention them, but don't formally cite them. So I think it doesn't show us so much about the particular papers that are up there, as it tells us about citation practice, and of course, the importance of methods and mathematics in science. Were these papers instant citation celebs when they were first published? Actually not. Some of them were sleeper hits. There's a very famous stats paper at number 11 by Edward Kaplan and Paul Meyer that helps researchers find survival patterns amongst people in clinical trials. They introduced the famous Kaplan-Meyer curve. Now, when that came out in 1958, it got almost no citations until computing power exploded in the 1970s. So just because your paper doesn't have any citations now or for the first five years or the first 10 years, don't give up heart because it could turn out to be crucially important later on. In your opinion, is this really a useful measure of scientific success or the value of a paper? If you're going to use citations to compare papers, which some do today, you really ought to be doing it by comparing it to the norm in your field or comparing it to the norm of other people at your stage of your career. This is not what we've done here. We've just added everything up, which is a very crude measure that professional bibliometricians would just recoil from in horror. So what value does this list have? Well, I think it's fun to look through, but it kind of reminds us that the most important findings in science can't be summed up by the number of citations. Peter Moore, who's a chemist at Yale University, said of this list, well, if citations are what you want, then devising a method that makes it possible for people to do the experiments they want to do will get you a lot more than discovering the secrets of the universe. But it's really the papers that are built on these experiments and methods that are significant and world-changing and influential. And if anything, this top 100 papers list reminds us that software and methods are extremely important and need to be supported uh, because so much credence is placed on making the big discovery, winning the Nobel Prize. On the other hand, citations aren't everything. Still to come, the socialite who was also the original science communicator, Mary Somerville, and will weigh in on NASA's plans to bag an asteroid. Wait, what do you mean? Like literally just put an asteroid in a bag. Say what? But first, it's the research highlights, read by Noah Baker. Astronomers have crossed wires over some apparently extragalactic radio pulses. An observatory in Switzerland detected a number of short but intense radio bursts. The waves appeared to have been stretched as though they've passed through mega expanses of plasma. This usually suggests some crazy extragalactic event, like the evaporation of a very old black hole. Heavy stuff. 
but the timing of the radio burst didn't match up to these events. Their source remains unknown, but they might come from Earth. Oops. Find out more in the Astrophysical Journal. A compound found in tea and cocoa can help protect memory in older adults. Compounds called flavanols have been shown in mice to boost cognitive performance, but could the same be true for humans? Scientists gave a drink made from flavanol-rich powder, like unsweetened chocolate milk, to adults over 50. Those with the added cocoa boosts performed better on memory tests after three months. They also showed more activity in a memory-related brain area. But hold up on the chocolate binge, flavanols may not survive the chocolate-making process. And even if they did, you'd need a lot more than one chock bar to get a high enough dose. Check Nature Neuroscience for the results. We all want to go to Mars. OK, maybe not you personally, but we all want someone to go. And so do space agencies like NASA. But it's no easy feat. Just as you can't simply get up and run a marathon without training, sending humans to Mars requires lots of preparation and lots of practice. In 1969, Apollo 11 landed on the moon. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. One giant leap both for mankind and the pursuit of Martian holiday plans. But where's the next stepping stone after the moon? We need to venture further afield if we're going to start testing systems that could one day allow us to make the big trip. NASA's suggestion is to visit an asteroid. The problem is most of them are nowhere near us, so NASA's first plan is to go and get one and bring it nearer. Richard Binzel, a rocket scientist at MIT, doesn't agree with NASA's plans, and Lizzie Gibney found out why. Here's Richard. Asteroids have long been recognised as intermediate targets between the Earth and Mars, and the idea was proposed that we should go to an asteroid by the year 2025. It turns out that capabilities of our spacecraft just aren't quite going to be ready uh, in the year 2025. So an alternate idea was proposed, which if we can't go to an asteroid, why not bring one back to us? To retrieve an asteroid, you have to invent some sort of capture bag or a claw to grab it and then drag it back uh, to uh, lunar orbit. And none of those things are anything that you need if you want to go to Mars. So it'd be a, a bit of a dead end. What, would you, what are your preferred options in that case? What else could we do? It turns out we now realize that there are far more abundant asteroids in orbits near the Earth that are relatively easy to reach. And all we have to do is find them. It seems pointless to go and retrieve an asteroid when we can wait for one to come to us. Here's the beauty. The asteroid survey that we need for human spaceflight as a gateway for human exploration is exactly what we also need. It will also serve the purpose of informing us about asteroid hazards and future impacts. For decades, uh, planetary scientists and even national reports have argued that we should be searching for asteroids because of the hazard that they pose to the Earth. Uh, it is true that uh, over time asteroids do hit the Earth, and we should, in fact, be searching for them. And so by taking the next step towards human spaceflight, in finding these destinations, 
we're going to address this hazard problem as well. It's a win-win situation. And what does the rest of the world make of NASA's current proposals? Most space agencies are simply looking for NASA to lead, and then they'll follow. But the asteroid uh, redirect or asteroid retrieval concept has gotten a very cool reception virtually everywhere. I suppose capturing an asteroid in that way does sound quite Hollywood. Um, does your proposal suffer from a from a lack of glamour, do you think? The thing we need to do with human spaceflight is to build up the duration and distance capability so that we can ultimately leave the cradle of the Earth-Moon system and get into interplanetary space. And, in fact, it isn't very glamorous to spend time in empty Earth-Moon space just practicing for that longer and longer spaceflight. But the honest reality is that's what we should be doing, and there's no reason to have it be any more costly than it absolutely has to be. And when does the U.S. have to decide then on which direction to take its space policy? Well, the asteroid retrieval mission has been proposed or has been asked for to uh, appear in the president's 2015 budget. And so the, the time is now when these kind of decisions are being made. Richard Binzel of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. By the 1830s, the publisher John Murray had an all-star roll call of authors, Lord Byron, Jane Austen and the scientist favourite Charles Darwin. Murray's scientific bestseller, Until Darwin's Origin of Species, was a pop science book published 180 years ago this year, 1834. It was written by a self-taught Scottish mathematician called Mary Somerville. It was called On the Connection of the Physical Sciences. Biographer Richard Holmes has written about Somerville's book for Nature and he joins me in the studio. Richard, lovely to have you. Great to be here. Now, Mary's early life didn't suggest necessarily that she would become this sort of science reporter and socialite that she later did, did become. No, it, it's an amazing story. Uh, she grew up as a sort of wild child. She was born a little place called Burntisland. I'm not sure if that's correct Scottish pronunciation, but anyway, on the 1st of 4th, her father was a naval captain, eventually a rear admiral, but he was away a lot of the time. Mary had an elder brother, Sam, but they ran kind of wild, gathering seashells, and she loved uh, seabirds. In fact, she says she loved seabirds better than dolls ever. Quite a character. And she had an alternative family, which was her uncle. He was a completely different character. So a different kind of world began to open up. And a particular thing happened. She was given this, very unlikely, a woman's fashion magazine. You can't, young Mary, you can't imagine her being very interested in this. But at the back, she found these mathematical problems and puzzles. And the word algebra, she, this was like this magic word, like abracadabra, what does this mean? And she suddenly got fascinated by this. She asked her brother's tutor if he would teach her. And lo and behold, she started reading um, Euclid's Elements. She said, I lay awake in the dark running Euclidean theories through my head. That's a wonderful picture of her. By her teenage years, she's been turned on to the world of science and mathematics. And then after one sort of, as you say in your piece, disastrous marriage, she actually marries someone very scientifically inclined. And I suppose her scientific interest just keeps blossoming. Her husband, William Somerville, he was a very interesting man, a physician, a fellow of the Royal Society, and was scientifically inclined and understood Mary. So they married in 1812. 
And then they went to London in 1816. And immediately they made contact with the sort of scientific circle around the Royal Society. Uh, John Herschel became a great friend, Babbage, Michael Faraday. She made this very striking impact because it was an all-male society. But somehow, Mary, everybody said how modest she was, but how brilliant and how clever. Um, She was asked to write a short popular book, General Survey of Science, which ordinary readers can read and understand. So she became a reporter on the latest European science being done. And what are a couple of the highlights for you of the stuff that she uh, covers and writes about and reports on in this book? Okay, before, um, basically that kind of book was vague books of uh, natural philosophy. She defined it into very tight areas of physical science, astronomy particularly, chemistry, geology and geography, physics in general, and areas like acoustics. And she gives each one a chapter, and she writes with very direct simplicity, no diagrams, no equations, and um, her accounts, uh, for example, on the section of acoustics, there's a wonderful description of how uh, sound waves move. She describes them as like the wind moving through a field of corn. Very, very simple image of how the impact of sound. And then she says light moves like this as well. She wrote on the spectrum, a light spectrum, infrared and ultraviolet light, one of the very earliest accounts of this, and saying probably typical of her, she said, I think birds must use areas, infrared or ultraviolet, for their navigation. Insects must use it, all of which we know is turned out to be right. It's clear that she was very popular at the time. This book was very successful. Um, but to my shame, I'd, I'd barely heard her name before this, um, this article appeared, that you've written it in Nature. I mean, what happened since? What happened then? First of all, the, very important, the book is translated and published widely. It appears in Berlin, in Paris, in New York. It runs continually to new editions that Murray kept producing, and she updated it. Itself, a quite a modern phenomenon. She put new scientific work in, 10 editions of that. She helped a number of younger science people, and most significantly Ada Lovelace, the young, the daughter of Lord Byron, also a mathematician, and she uh, did a... Um, crucial introduction, which is the young Ada, age 20, I think, introduced to Charles Babbage, the man who was building the difference and the analytical machine, the beginnings of the computer. And, of course, Ada writes those famous notes. She described what a computer program is in the notes. Now, that introduction was entirely due to Mary Somerville. So she was, she was a mentor figure as well. Science communicators today are sometimes accused of cheerleading for science and for scientists. Is that what she was doing in popularising it or did she... It sounds like she was actually a bit more incisive than that. What she was really doing was saying to the general reader, you can understand what our science people are doing. She was also saying women can understand science as well. This is very, very important because there was a great movement to to isolate women from the scientific advances. So that's the second thing she was doing. Was she critical of science? Yes, in later life, uh, for example, she hated the idea of vivisection and campaigned against it. And I think she felt towards the end of her life particularly that um, there was a kind of science triumphalism going on, that um, it was very positivist. She's very interesting on Darwin. She accepted the concept of evolution, but she did not accept 
the concept that therefore a creative god was removed from the scene. She wanted both. Uh, and that's very characteristic of her, I think. That was biographer Richard Holmes, based in London. Finally this week, it's the news chat and reporter Ewan Calloway joins me. Ewan, hi. Hello. Now, first of all, listeners will have heard, probably, of gene knockouts in mice and in other animals, where researchers go in and they tweak genes so it doesn't work anymore. Your story this week is about human knockouts. Exactly. So mouse knockouts, we're all familiar with that. It garnered a Nobel Prize in 2007, I believe. But the latest trend that I've written about is the search for human knockouts. And unlike the mouse knockouts, knockouts of other animals, these aren't genetically engineered uh, mutants. These are humans, you and me, walking around with mutations. On average, each of us has about 100 so-called loss-of-function mutations that inactivate one of our two copies of a gene. And for 20 genes, we have both copies missing. And most people are doing just fine with these knockouts. Yeah, and just let's clarify again, no researchers are knocking any genes out of humans. These are just naturally occurring mutations that, as you say, we're all walking around with. Um, And why has this not been sort of looked at extensively before? Knockout mutations or loss of function mutations have been studied in the past in association with these really rare debilitating diseases. Cystic fibrosis is a good example. And they usually look for some, take somebody with a disease and look for a mutation that could be causing it. Um, These latest studies are instead looking at lots and lots and lots of seemingly healthy people and just seeing where they have these knockout mutations and then comparing them to their health to see if they have any subtle effects on health, either harmful or beneficial. Now, previous studies have actually found some sort of poster children for some of these gene knockouts that can be quite beneficial. In fact, you can lose both copies of a gene or one copy um, and you can do much better out of that. Yeah, as you say, the poster child for these human knockout studies is this gene called PCSK9, which was discovered in the early 2000s, not as a result of these kind of wide-scale genome sequencing efforts, but almost kind of kind of accidentally. And it found that people missing one copy, one of their two copies of this gene, have uh, very low cholesterol levels, and they're protected against heart disease. And in the last decade or so, drug companies have set about to try and mimic the effects of this mutation. So they're kind of lowering PCSK9 levels. And these drugs are probably going to hit the market next year. And it's estimated that they could you know, sell billions, you know, a drug that lowers cholesterol. So that's really like the upside of finding and characterizing these knockout mutations in humans, new drugs, and insight into biology. But this is kind of a big, a big old trawl through a lot of data, right? You know, thousands of individuals. We've all got umpteen genes. I don't even know how many genes a human has. Uh, 20 some thousand, 24,000. Right. The estimates keep changing a little bit. Um, but that's an awful lot of data to look through. How long is a project like this going to take? These projects are more resources rather than things than with, with a beginning and an end. One of the researchers I spoke with, Daniel MacArthur at Massachusetts General Hospital, um, just analyzed 90-some thousand human exomes, which is the part of the genome that makes proteins, and uh, released the data of 63,000 of these on the internet pretty much for anybody to use. Um, So this this is about kind of generating resources for people asking interesting questions to see, hey, you know, what is my favorite gene? 
is it knocked out in people and what are the effects on health? So this is kind of like, I mean, it can drive a whole no, new way of doing biology. In the past, people would take a gene of interest that they found, knock them out in mice and, you know, spend the rest of their career characterizing these mice. Now they can start saying, what happens when a human has a mutation in this gene and what are its effects? Um, yeah. All right. Well, moving on from human health to the health of our nearest and dearest, at least here in the UK, we're slightly obsessed with our pets. And the next story you've brought, which is by another reporter of ours, Erica Check Hayden, this is about uh, pet dogs. Yeah, and making them live longer. Hooray. Yeah. It's about this drug called rapamycin, which is isolated from a bacteria. It was found on Easter Island, which is also known as Rapa Nui, hence the name. And it was uh, approved in the 90s as an immunosuppressive drug given to people who get organ transplants. But after that, researchers found that when this drug was given to mice or to yeast, it made them live longer. The question has been, you know, could this be a drug to help humans live longer, to treat diseases of of aging? Nobody's done, as far as I know, a, a trial of rapamycin on humans for various reasons. But these researchers in Seattle had this idea that Maybe we can give it to pet dogs. Pet dogs um, are fairly long-lived as, as animals go. Um, I had a golden retriever who lived to the ripe old age of 17. Klondike, I miss you. Um, and they're also exposed to a lot of the same environmental stressors, the same, same environmental effects as, as humans. So people have tested cancer drugs on pet dogs. And so these researchers are thinking, you know, why not test this uh, aging drug on, on them as well? They're not going to be short of volunteers who are hoping to have their pets live um, long into their 20s. I suppose not. No, there was a meeting. I think the story was pegged to a meeting in, uh, in, uh, in Seattle this week where the researchers are based. And I think, you know, the idea is to really involve pet dog owners. I think they want to do a trial of 30, initially a pilot trial, but then ramp it up to hundreds of dogs. And you can imagine people being really quite excited to give their dog a chance at living longer. But there's some difficulties in that if this is a properly designed trial, you have to have a placebo arm. That is, you know, half the dogs have to receive nothing. And you wonder if uh, a lot of dog owners won't want to enroll their their pets in in a trial where they might not get any medicine. And rapamycin, I mean, it hasn't been trialed in humans for its anti-aging effects because it has a whole bunch of uh, side effects and it is an immune suppressant after all. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's immunosuppressant. It's used in, in, in transplants. As such, it's known to increase the risk of cancer by tamping down your immune system that keeps cancers in check. But the studies, I believe, in, in other animals that have shown beneficial effects of rapamycin have used much smaller doses of the drug. So the hope is, is that maybe these smaller doses won't have the harmful effects. There's another problem, though, with uh, taking rapamycin to the clinic or developing it as a drug is that it's it's off patent. Um, and so drug companies can't make a lot of money from giving people rapamycin. But I, I've heard that there are some pharmaceutical companies that are trying to mimic the effects of rapamycin with other drugs, ideally ones that don't have the immunosuppressive effects um, and ones that they can patent and make billions of dollars on. Thanks, Ewan. Find those ageing dogs, or maybe not so ageing, and that knockout story and more at nature.com slash news. And we'll see you in a week. If you have any thoughts between now and then, tweet us at Nature Podcasts. I'm Jeff Marsh. And I'm Kerry Smith. 